Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Duetes. And I'm Jacob Shetkin. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Hello and welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. For today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Maliha Syed, a principal scientist working for Avalon, where her role is to generate formulations for new hair care products. Have you ever wondered exactly what makes your hair frizzy or sometimes outright unmanageable? Maybe even why is it curly or why is it straight? Or why should I use this product instead of that one? Well, now you can find out. Stay tuned as Dr. Syed provides all the answers. All right, Malia, we are good to go. How about you get us started by telling our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure, Jacob. Um, So I am Dr. Malia Syed, and I'm currently working at Avalon Industries as a principal scientist. Avalon, we're primarily a hair care company. We were founded in 1984 here out of Chicago. Some of our most popular brands are you know, Care Care, As I Am, Syntonics, FiberGuard, Texture Release. These products are mostly geared towards ethnic care care. So I've been working at Avalon since 2015 after I completed my PhD in polymer science and engineering from the University of Southern Mississippi. Before that, I did my bachelor's of science from the George Washington University in chemistry and economics, actually. So I had a double major. And actually, after I completed my, my bachelor's, I joined Avalon as a, as a scientist, as a chemist, and I was working in formulation. And I just felt like, you know, I needed a little bit more of an understanding of fundamental science to become an excellent, amazing, you know, formulator. So that's, was the motivation for me to go to grad school. And I started researching programs. I, I basically used a ton of polymers in all of my products, all of my formula, uh, formulations. So that's what kind of tipped me off to this field of polymers. And then incidentally, I, um, you know, I'm part of the Society of Cosmetic Chemists. And Dr. Robert Lockhead a really, really big uh, figure in the cosmetic uh, world. So I saw him do a lecture at the Society of Cosmetic Chemists, and that's how I got introduced to the program at University of Southern Mississippi. He was the, uh, the chair, the chairman there at the time. That's kind of you know, how I connected polymers with cosmetics and how I got to where I am right now. So if that's what then got you into, into polymer science and going to grad school, can you tell us a little bit more about what you gained from grad school, from, from this experience that made you better at what you do? It made you a better fundamental scientist. Yeah, sure. At USM, at the University of Southern Mississippi, you have the opportunity to join you know, a number of different research groups. So I picked the Nazarenko Research Group uh, for a number of different reasons. I, I had Dr. Nazarenko as a professor my first year, and he taught us with a physical chemistry so I realized quickly that if you really want to understand how things work, physical chemistry is the way to go. And Dr. Nazarenko's approach, especially, he was very good at drilling down to the 
the basics. He wanted to know at the basic level, why is this working? How is it happening? So that's how I realized that this is the guy I want to work with and learn from. And that's what I did. I would say that most of my work was, you know, uh, physical chemistry oriented with a little bit of synthesis in there, which was great because I got an introduction to that world too. So I was basically explaining how a group of polymers, I worked with dendromers and hyperbranch polymers, I was basically explaining how they work and talking about their properties at the nanoscale at a very fundamental level. So this kind of thinking, critical thinking process really helped me, like whatever project I'm in, I go into that mode where I'm like, okay, you have to explain this at the most basic, basic, basic level. And if you can't, then you don't know what you're doing. I think that that's how my PhD really prepared me to work in industry. Awesome. Thank you. I don't think we really talked a lot before about your grad school research. Maybe if you can just quickly define dendromers and uh, what what's some of the, right, like you don't need to get real into, um, unless of course you want to, I just, just for the sake of your time. And <laughs> I remember sitting at your dissertation and, and uh, Dr. Story put it best in how eloquently you were able to to boil down the complex topics, but you had a full dissertation defense to break it down. So yeah. however however much you can maybe define um, in the amount of time that you're comfortable with would be great. And it, it can even just be defining, like I said, what a, what a dendromer is and maybe a couple of interesting properties about that type of polymer. Yeah, sure. So I, again, I worked with uh, dendromers and hyperbranched polymers. The name kind of gives it away. They, so typical polymers are, you know, linear architectures, but hyperbranched and dendromers, hyperbranched polymers and dendromers are, you know, you start with a core and the polymer basically branches out at each point or junction. And um, the hyperbranched polymers are irregularly branched where dendromers are perfectly branched. The best way to think about their shapes are like, you know, the roots of a plant, tree branches on a tree, the thunder, the, the, the lightning bolts, or like in your brain, the, the dendrites. So that's kind of what they look like because of their shape. They have different properties, basically. What we were trying to understand was um, specifically with hydroxylated hyperbranch polymers and dendromers, how do their properties, specifically their hydrogen bonding patterns, differ between each other? So because dendromers are perfectly branched, they might have different properties even than hyperbranch polymers, which are irregularly branched. And then these, as a group, would have different properties than linear polymers. So we were basically comparing across the three to understand their different hydrogen bonding patterns, their different thermodynamic behavior, and their different you know, volumetric behavior. So that's how I would kind of summarize it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Still, e even then, still very well summarized. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just you know off the top of my head. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no big deal. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so. Were you, because when you, since you were working in cosmetics before you got here, did, were you able to tailor your research in the NAS, Dr. Nazarenko's lab to cosmetic science? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I was doing, um, so when I was, I, I did formulation work for only a few months and mm -hmm. I was in way over my head. Like I was doing it, but I didn't have a deep understanding of it. Right. 
So when I got into the program, I just uh, at USM, I just went with the flow. I wasn't like, no, I have to stay close to cosmetics. And Dr. Lockett always advised me that, you know, you don't need to do your degree in cosmetic science. You just need to understand science and you can do cosmetic science. So he was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, the, our professors tend to be right with these kinds of things. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, my co-host had a, some questions regarding whether you can tell us how the differences in hair might affect the type of product that you're going to be trying to create. And you, you mentioned uh, earlier in, in the last recording, unfortunately, that um, you your Avalon focuses on like curly hair, textured hair. What was the word you used? Yes. Yeah. Curly hair, but you can also call it textured hair. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. So we have one brand under our sister company that's called Uberlists, and that is geared towards Caucasian hair. So primarily straighter hair types. And then all of our other brands are geared towards curly and extremely curly, maybe spiral shaped hair. Different hair types are going to have different needs for sure. And I'm just going to give you a very basic example. Yeah. Let's talk about maybe porosity and um, let's talk about frizziness, for example. Okay. Okay. Uh, recently, we've done a lot of studies on porosity in our uh, labs at Avalon. And what we've seen is a trend where as the hair fiber becomes progressively curlier and curlier and curlier to coily, you see an increased, um, you see the hair fiber become more porous, so a higher porosity, and thus it's prone to more frizziness. That's actually one of the reasons why is because it's related to the surface of the hair fiber. The outer surface is called the cuticle. So hair fibers that are curlier actually have fewer cuticle layers than hair fibers that are straighter. And what happens is because the cuticle is the first line of defense for hair fibers, if you have less cuticle layers, you allow for more uh, water, uh, water vapor to permeate into the hair fiber. And that water vapor, once it gets into the hair fiber, it causes the hair fiber to swell and thus it looks frizzy. Your hair, your hair looks frizzy when your hair fibers are swollen and they don't align together. They're, you know, mismatched and, you know, they start to look, they give that little blurred, frizzy, puffy look. Yeah. So is it that's the, the frizzy hair, is it um, like it's binding water vapor or, or how, what's, what, what is it pulling in to have that effect of, of being like a blur on your head? It's just literally the water vapor comes in and it swells the hair fiber. Okay. So it just, well, it holds onto it and it swells the hair. Weird. Yeah. So the hair fiber is a little bit more swollen. And the way that you can counteract that frizziness is you can use a formulation that has polymers in it. And <laughs> I can talk about that a little bit later. But the polymer would adsorb onto the surface of the hair fiber and prevent water vapor from coming into the hair fiber. And it would allow the cuticles to lie flat. And so again, optically, if the hair fiber, the cuticles are lying flatter, it'll the hair will look smoother, less puffy, and less frizzy than quote unquote. I'm having trouble building an image of what a what cuticles look like on, on okay. hair. <laughs> they're but like shingles on a roof. They're okay, and but it's along it's along the entire hair. Yes. Hair, okay. Okay. I'm yeah. I'm probably gonna go look up pictures of hair. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um <clears throat> go go ahead. Go on. I can cut you off. Oh no, that's it. So they're um 
the cuticles look like shingles on a roof, mm-hmm. um, they're overlapping layers. Now in like straighter hair, you have like seven to 10 layers. And then with curlier hair types, you have less, I want to say like maybe four to seven. And where the hair fiber turns in curly hair, that's specifically where you get an even uh, more decreased level of cuticle layers. And we think that's just a geometric kind of thing that nature has accounted for. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I'm still stuck on, on frizzy hair. I'm trying to picture this. Um, <laughs> so when when hair gets swollen and frizzy, you have those cuticles, those shingles, they sort of swell up unevenly. Is that is that one of the issues? Well, actually, the hair fibers themselves become uneven, like they become unevenly swollen. So hair fiber A and hair fiber B, of course, they're not going to swell identically the same. Mm-hmm. So they swell up differently. And next to each other, they they don't perfectly align. So you've got a number of hair fibers next to each other. They're all swollen. They're swollen at different points, different degrees, and they just look like a big swollen, <laughs> puffy mess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say that. That doesn't sound very nice. But um, you know, straight hair, you know, the hair fibers are straight and they line up next to each other. And that's what optically they look smooth and gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And so straighter hair naturally just seems has more cuticle layers, you said. Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. Okay. There are other reasons too, but I'm gonna right for now. I'm gonna just yeah, <laughs> stick to yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, I'm obviously just gonna get sidetracked on hair. I just yeah. want to clearly. <laughs> I, I want to know more about my own hair. Is what's happening? Oh yeah, sure. Um, well, you see, I now I'll get I'll get to my own hair in a second. This isn't about. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned there's sort of specific formulations for these different obstacles you're trying to tackle, whether it's frizzy hair or uh, a dry scalp, things like that. I want to know more, I guess, about some of the main polymers that are used that you're allowed to share. Chemical and Engineering News had an article recently on, I got to make sure I say this right, hyaluronic acid? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, that was a big like, oh, you know about this one. And it uh, it's the headline caught my interest because it was A, on the cover, but uh, it was, you know, an article talking about its involvement in polymer cosmetics. And one thing I read that I thought was pretty interesting about this this sugar was that it said it can bind something like up to eight or nine times its own weight in water, which yeah. I imagine, you know, good for moisturizing, and which is something important in various cosmetic products. So with all of that, is there something like hyaluronic acid? that you guys are like, oh, that's like salt on food. We got to throw that in everything. Well, just so you know, hyaluronic acid is super popular and it's been widely used for a while now. And it's really cool because, yeah, the best part about it is it's water binding capability. So it acts as a moisturizer and it comes in a lot of different molecular weights. One thing that, yeah, again, I don't know how much I can say, but (laughs) one thing that has been done, you know, you could use a high molecular weight hyaluronic acid mixed in with, you know, a medium molecular weight and a lower molecular weight hyaluronic acid. And, you know, the higher molecular weight one will form a film on the surface of the hair that'll act as a barrier to moisture loss. The lower molecular weights will diffuse a little bit into the skin, top skin layers like the stratum corneum, and they will help moisturize the skin. So you can really play around with your hyaluronic acid in terms of molecular weights and get kind of like the best of all worlds. 
So it's a pretty, pretty cool polymer. Now you asked me if there's like a polymer like hyaluronic acid that we use in our formulations that were like, oh yeah, that's, we got to put that in. Right. Mm -hmm. So one polymer that class of polymers, I should say, that are amazing in cosmetics are silicones. <laughs> okay. So um, let me explain a little bit about yeah. what they are. So silicones have been used in cosmetics for like more than half a century. Um, I think they were industrialized in 1949 or something like that. So since then, they've been used in hair care, skin care, nails, everything makeup over the past 10 years, actually over 50% of new products globally contain at least one silicone. If you pick up any of your shampoos or your conditioners and you turn the bottle around, you look at the ingredient listing, you will definitely, you should see at least one silicone. So silicones are defined as compounds that possess at least one silicon carbon bond and have a siloxane or silicon oxygen linkage. And they're made up of basically alternating silicon and oxygen atoms. And they can be functionalized in a lot of different ways. And that's what gives ways to so many different types of silicones. Now, what makes them more favorable than your typical hydrocarbon or organic polymers? Well, the silicon oxygen bond and the silicon carbon bond basically allow for more freedom of rotation compared to the carbon-carbon and carbon-oxygen bonds. And that allows the uh, silicones to adopt the lowest energy conf configuration at interfaces, which means that they have ultra-low surface tension values compared to organic polymers. And that means they can spread super easily on surfaces like hair and skin. They also impart amazing feel properties. So like they can give you that really smooth uh, feel optically. They'll make the hair look shinier. The uh, silicon oxygen bond energy bond energy is a lot larger than the carbon carbon bond energy. So silicones can give a lot more uh, thermal stability as compared to organic polymers. You can go one step further. In hair conditioners, we typically use cationic polymers. So cationic silicones are just amazing. They're like the best of both worlds. So, so yeah, that's definitely an example of a polymer that we would use in every type of product. When you're making these formulations, you have to consider, okay, once someone's used this conditioner and they washed off their hair, we have to make sure that whatever comes off isn't going to, you know, stay as some high molecular weight polymers, that it's something that has to maybe break down and be uh, environmentally okay. Oh gosh. Okay. When I joined Avalon, I, I tried to, I got really deep into that, but it's a very, um, we're far from that right mm -hmm. now. I have to say we're, we're getting into more sustainability, but we're starting with measures like improving our recycling programs, like with packaging, uh, trying to get to packaging that can be recycled or biodegradable, compostable, that kind of thing. But right now with our ingredients, we haven't gotten that far, I would say. So of course, if your polymer is biodegradable, then when you rinse it off, it'll most likely decompose better uh -huh. than a silicone, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, silicones have gotten a lot of, you know, there's like an anti-silicone movement going on right now, but it's actually not even because of what you just said. <laughs> you know, silicones are so good that people started to kind of question them like, oh, are they so good that they're bad for my hair? Oh, no. Are they clogging my 
they're clogging my hair, they're not letting moisture in. And so, and of course they, they're not sustainable in the, in the sense that they are to make them, to synthesize them. It's like, uh, you need a lot of high energy. Uh-huh. So they're not the most sustainable polymers for sure. But they, but they just work really, really well. Oh yeah. For the reasons that I stated, they're amazing. And right now, uh, you know, chemical suppliers are just for the past five to 10 years, they've been trying to come up with alternatives to silicones to organic polymers. And, you know, it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, <have> to say. <laughs> I mean, they should keep trying, but we haven't, we haven't beat, beat them yet. <laughs> okay. I, I do have some other questions here. Actually, I, I spoke with one of my, uh, my sisters before we, we started this because I, I thought to uh-huh. myself, well, there's a whole area of cosmetics that I don't ever touch in makeup. And I know that this isn't what you, uh, oh, yeah. this is not any of your product, but I'm wondering if you might be able to answer some of the questions that she had, which were, okay. one is what, what makes makeup waterproof? Oh, well, silicones. <laughs> oh, boom. There it is. We've already talked about it. And so is there, uh... yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I actually don't know. I'm 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 going to be honest with you. Makeup is one area that I haven't really delved into. Mm-hmm. But just as a formulator, I would say that of course silicones are used in makeup a lot, and they definitely confer those hydrophobic properties and make it waterproof. She was also curious: Why does applying a little bit of lotion help to remove it? Oh, okay, that's pretty simple. Um, so that is just like dissolves like. That's one of our basic concepts that we learn in chemistry. So if you have something like makeup that's waterproof, it's most likely something that is oily. Something like lotion that's usually an emulsion, so it consists of oil and water phases. That'll help solubilize the oil uh, from your makeup and remove it. Perfect. Okay, and this one I, we can actually definitely make more relatable to to what you were talking about. You you mentioned, say for example, in in the the hyaluronic acid, you you can make a high molecular weight HA, and you mm-hmm. that would uh, create a film to act as a moisture barrier to keep moisture mm-hmm. in. One question that she had, that we'll, I'll I'll bring it right back, but she said that some some makeup, if it's not you know quality, if you put it when you put it on your her skin, it'll crack over time. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any issue with that when you're trying to make a polymer that you need to be a film? In any of your formulation studies, if you were doing an experiment on something that you needed to be a film, what do you need to do to make sure that film doesn't also crack and defeat the purpose? Typically, stiffer polymers that are more uh, maybe glassy, those would cause that kind of cracking effect to occur. So you need your polymer to be in kind of that sweet spot where it's just elastic enough that it can move with the hair fiber or the skin, but it needs to also be tight or stiff enough that it can also hold the integrity of uh, the hair fiber and the skin. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to find sort of a balance between flexibility to move with what it's attached to and stiffness to hold its own. Yeah. So a polymer with a stiffer backbone, especially if it's below its glass transition temperature, it might be more prone to that. uh, We've talked about it in polymer science, like brittle failure or something, Mm -hmm. it'll start Mm -hmm. cracking. But if it's above its TG, it can actually be more elastic and it can absorb those deformations and still remain intact. I wanted to go back to maybe your advice on treating different hair types. So, (laughs) right, like uh, I pulled up again the character 
care care dry and itchy scalp what yeah. what what do you and again obviously if if any of this is um what's the term pi then uh I'll let me know but uh yeah, yeah. what what is something that is commonly used in in uh formulations that are used for dry and itchy scalp Sure yeah that's actually a topic that's near and dear to us at Avlon so okay there's so much I can say about this <laughs> but I'm going to just be I'm going to try to be succinct here so dry and itchy scalp we try to target scalps that have dandruff basically and dandruff is a fungus that is on uh, naturally can be on the scalp a fungus called malassezia furfur and actually 50% of americans have this on their scalp just naturally it's not like you can acquire it from somewhere you can use a number of different actives to basically kill the fungus and um the fungus is never permanently killed it keeps coming back and back and um it has to do with the microbiome of the scalp we're still learning more about about that as a scientific community but what we use as an active in our products is uh zinc pyrithione now traditional shampoos that are anti-dandruff shampoos we have found are very very drying and damaging and harsh on the scalp and they're even harsher for the i want to say the ethnic community so in the scientific literature we've seen that african american people will have a drier scalp just naturally so if they're using a anti dandruff head and shoulders product that's marketed towards uh caucasian hair that's going to dry out their scalp even more so our dry and itchy anti-dandruff products are geared towards not only eliminating dandruff but also uh conditioning the hair fibers and the scalp so that they remain moisturized you can actually get caught in like this downward spiral if you dry your scalp out too much that will cause the dandruff to even get more exacerbated so you can you cure it and then you'll dry your scalp out it'll get worse so you just get stuck in this cycle So yeah, our products are geared towards getting rid of dandruff. The itchiness, what we use for that is menthol. Menthol is considered an over-the-counter drug for treating itchiness. To give you a little bit of information on our technology, that's what we use to co- combat the itchiness aspect of a dry and itchy scalp. Really interesting. It's very fascinating to learn about the 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 fungus involved up there and I think explains why you know, sometimes there might be <laughs> I might try and save a little water or that's the excuse I tell myself and I'll go all shower on on the other day the you know the second day <laughs> and my goodness if I wait just that one extra day my head is killing me my scalp I mean like I just cannot yeah. stop scratching and now it's so much worse to know that there's fungus growing up there yeah yeah they're they're still figuring out what the mechanism is for that but like I said 50% of Americans would would have a problem with that yeah Yeah. Well, okay, I guess I'm It's glad you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not definitely not. And I also wanted to explain a little bit about gel nail polishes if we have time. Um, yeah. Cuz they're really cool. I don't make them, but <laughs> No. Yeah, yeah. Let's cool. let's do it. Okay, so polymers are great rheology modifiers. That's one of their primary functions in all cosmetic formulations, be it hair care, skin care, you know, makeup, nail polish. 
So we know rheology is the science of how things flow. A requirement of all cosmetic products is that they flow in the right way. So if you think about, let's take the example of like a skin cream. So when the cream is sitting in its packaging on the shelf, it has to have a certain flow. Then when you pick up that cream on your fingers, it has to have a different flow. Then when you have it on your fingers and you apply it to your skin, it also has to have a different flow. So the flow has to be dynamic. The rheology of a cosmetic formulation needs to be dynamic throughout its, throughout its usage. And that's why polymers are really helpful because they allow the formulation to uh, be dynamic with uh, shear rate. So a polymer sitting on the shelf has you know, virtually zero shear rate, but when you're applying it to the skin, it has a really high shear rate. Another way that polymers help rheology is they affect how easy it is for the formulation to be rubbed into your skin or removed from your skin after you use it. And they also affect the stability of your formulation. Just a, just so, a quick in, interjection in case someone isn't quite sure of what, what shear rate is. Can, can we, in this context, is it okay to, to if I described it as like how, how hard, or how much force someone's using to spread something on their skin? Yeah, like the rate of deformation. Exactly. So if you're rubbing slowly or really fast, you know, really quickly, then yeah, you have different shear rates there. So at the very basic level, polymers uh, serve as thickeners in all cosmetic formulations. So they increase the viscosity of the product and viscosity is just the resistance to flow. So molasses would have a high viscosity and water would have a low viscosity. They can also change the type of flow that your product has. So water, for example, has a Newtonian rheology in the sense that the viscosity does not change with shear rate. So that is the most basic kind of uh, rheology profile. But cosmetic formulations have a viscoelastic rheology profile. And specifically within viscoelastic, they have a shear thinning profile, which basically means that the viscosity decreases with increasing shear rate. And then you can go a step further where polymeric networks, they can actually give your cosmetic formula an added network strength or a yield value. So your viscosity is not going to change unless you break the network and overcome this yield value or yield strength. So if we talk about polymeric thickeners at the very basic level, this is what everyone does to control the viscosity of their products. If you look at the ingredient label on the back of a formula and you see like carbomer or xanthan gum or poly something something, usually that's in there to control the viscosity. So how do polymeric thickeners work? The most basic thing that polymers can do is form chain entanglements. <laughs> so above a certain molecular weight, the chains will become long enough that they'll entangle and this will create a resistance to flow and just increase the viscosity. Now, another way that they increase viscosity is for a polymer with a given molecular weight, as you increase the concentration of that polymer, the chains will basically not be able to freely flow past each other. They'll start bumping into each other and associating with each other. And again, that's going to create a resistance to flow. And then 
Another way that polymers can thicken is, like I mentioned, certain polymers can form networks, whether they're cross-linked or just associated networks. Those networks are going to give an even more additive effect on thickening. And then there is a type of polymer that you can basically swell that polymer through the addition of base. And those types of polymers, they can increase your viscosity, you know, 10, tenfold. So those are those are even better at that. So I was going to give an example. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. I, I was a little curious if you can uh, provide an example of a, a, a standard products that one that might be highly entangled and one that has a low entanglement. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm going to start with a basic polymer that's natural mm -hmm. that everyone knows about, which is cellulose. Mm -hmm. So we all know that cellulose is a polymer of glucose. Um, the glucose units are connected by beta-1,4 glycosidic bonds. And this makes cellulose a very crystalline polymer with a pretty stiff backbone. Now, in cosmetic formulas, the usually the main vehicle, the continuous phase in cosmetic formulas is water. And you'd think that cellulose, because it's such a strong hydrogen bonder, it would be water soluble, but it's actually not. So as you increase the concentration of cellulose in aqueous solution, the solubility of cellulose decreases. And this is because the surface of cellulose becomes uh, less hydrophilic because of the strong intermolecular cellulose-cellulose hydrogen bonding. So cellulose by itself is not a useful polymeric thickener. Um, but by hydrophobically modifying cellulose at the hydroxy sites, we can increase its water solubility. And that's exactly what we do um, in cosmetics. And um, the water solubility probably increases because these hydrophobic substituents will sterically hinder this intermolecular crystallization process of the cellulose chains. So now let's talk about a really common um, hydrophobically modified version of cellulose that's used in cosmetics, and that's hydroxyethylcellulose, um, HEC. I use this personally in the lab, and it's great. It gives you a modest increase in viscosity. You know, the increase in viscosity here comes just by the chain entanglements. So that's all that hydroxyethylcellulose does in terms of increasing the viscosity. When you apply a shear strain to a formula with HEC, the chains will basically disentangle and align themselves along the flow field, and that will cause a decrease in viscosity and your formulation will flow and spread as you'd want it to do. Now, if we take HEC a step further and we further hydrophobically modify cellulose, um, what we can do is functionalize the hydroxyl groups with, for example, a C16 fatty alcohol, so acetyl group. So now we have hydrophobic groups attached to hydroxyethylcellulose. And these hydrophobic groups are going to associate with each other and create um, a network. And that's going to cause a more dramatic increase in your viscosity than just the chain entanglements. So you still have chain entanglements, but now you also have these hydrophobic regions that basically they function like a, a micelle in a surfactant solution where they aggregate together and they create these domains. Um, and then there's a sweet spot traditionally, like if you have too few of these um, 
you know, these uh, acetyl hydroxyethyl cellulose chains in your solution, they won't be able to intermolecularly interact. But once you have enough of it, they'll form great intermolecular hydrophobic interactions, and you'll get a really nice market increase in your viscosity. So that's one example. Now I'm going to give the example, my favorite, one of my favorite polymers. It's pretty old school in the cosmetic industries. It's called carbomer. What carbomer is, it's a high molecular weight homopolymer of acrylic acid. And it's lightly cross-linked with uh, allyl ethers of either pentaerythritol, sucrose, or propylene. And carbomer, one of the reasons why I love it is, is the feel of par- carbomer in your final formula is just great. It's like silky, smooth, almost powdery. I just love it. And um, what you guys can relate to is if you think about those traditional hair gels that are like super goopy thick, yeah. those are like your carbomer products. Okay. So carbomer can get to high, high viscosities like up to 100 uh, centipois. So the way that carbomer works is I mentioned that it's a homopolymer of acrylic acid and it's lightly cross-linked. So when you first disperse it in aqueous solution, the chains will you know, slightly uncoil, they're hyd- they'll hydrate, maybe form some entanglements, and you'll see a little bit of an increase in viscosity. It's a, uh, the chains are acidic in nature. So you'll have a pH of like 2.5, 3.5 when you first disperse carbomer. But the pKa of carbomers is around 6. So when you neutralize the solution with a base like sodium hydroxide or triethanolamine, the carboxylic acid groups on the, the polymer chain will ionize and then they'll swell to like several, several hundred times their original volume. And that's because of the electrostatic repulsion between those negatively charged uh, carboxylate groups. Uh And there's additionally, there's osmotic swelling as well because of those captive uh, counter ions. And so you'll have this super, super viscous uh, microgel and it's clear, which is desirable in uh, personal care formulations. And it'll give you a really high network strength as well. So say there was some, some some kind of product that originally was made for a bottle, like a lotion, a bottle of lotion like this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so if too, yeah. I'm I I I I'm this is an audio podcast. I'm holding up a uh, what would you call this? A tube? Mm-hmm. I think this is just yep. a tube. Um, yep. So there's a product that's in a tube, and then you find out based on some marketing research or something that buyers of this product would actually rather this be in a tub of something Mm -hmm. that does that then means that you're going to have to modify the formulation of that product so that it has the right rheology to be a stored in a little tub and then scooped out of it. That's exactly right, Jacob. That's exactly. Oh my gosh. And usually it's the opposite. We start with a tub, which is pretty easy and straightforward. And then we go to a tube. And tubes are way more complicated than tubs because if you think about it, if your viscosity is too low, Uh then it'll just drip, 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 keep dripping out of the tube. If it's too high, it might not come out of the tube well. So you really have to fine tune your uh, viscosity then. Jars are like super easy. You just put it in there and you scoop it out. <laughs> but yeah, that's a really that's a really good um, point that you just made. Interesting. That wow, you yeah. have um, 
uh, a tough job there. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a endless. I mean, something will, whether you're making new products or just modifying existing products, there's always something to be done. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty fun. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that's that was the the polymer rheology. Do you yeah. want to? Did you want to get into the conditioning agents? Before we get out of polymer rheology, mm -hmm. um, when we talk about these thickeners, uh, so let's talk about carbomer and how it forms a network and it has a network strength. So this helps us actually stabilize our products too. So usually our cosmetic formulas are made up of either more than one phase, like an oil phase or a water phase, or actives that need to be somehow dispersed in a suspension. If you take the example of those anti-dandruff shampoos, and I mentioned zinc pyrithion is the active. So zinc pyrithion as a molecule is pretty difficult to stabilize in a formulation. What do you mean by stabilize in a formulation? It likes to basically sediment to the bottom. Okay. And that's not helpful for application. When you apply it, it should be homogeneously distributed in the formula so that it spreads on your scalp appropriately. Mm -hmm. So we have to stabilize it into a, a nice homogeneous uh, suspension. And polymers like carbomer that have high yield values can help with that. So basically Stokes law tells us that instability is caused by the movement of particles through the system. So polymers can slow down the movement of the particles just by increasing their viscosity. That's the most oldest, the oldest trick in the book. You know, you're having a hard time with stability and you've made 50 formulas and you're just stuck and you're like, you know what, let me just try a polymer. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me just stick a polymer in there. Maybe that <laughs> but, you know, scientifically it makes sense and it works. But the other thing that the networks do is basically if the energy needed to break the network is greater than the gravitational energy of an individual particle in your formula, then you have a nice stable suspension. So we actually use this type of um, technology in our anti-dandruff shampoo. We have a polymer and there are a lot of other things that we do, but the polymer network actually has a higher strength than the gravitational energy of the zinc pyrithion. So that helps stabilize uh, the system. So that's just one fundamental uh, topic. But yeah, let's talk about hair conditioning. Just uh, just to be sure that I'm using this word the same way you are, when we're talking hair conditioner, we're talking about the moisturizing conditioner that, say, I use after I shampoo? Yes, exactly. So just about to define um, what I mean by conditioned is we want our hair to look soft and smooth and shiny, you know, our hair to look healthy. And um, what hair conditioners do is for wet hair, they make wet hair easier to detangle and comb, which is especially important in curly hair um, because the hair fibers can tangle up. And then in dry hair, hair conditioners um, make the hair smoother and shinier and just generally more manageable. Skin conditioners, they'll primarily moisturize and also protect against like, you know, UV damage. Um, they can also strengthen the skin. So they're similar, but a little different, but we're going to talk about hair conditioners specifically. So what we do usually for hair conditioning, we use polymers. Polymers basically can alter the surface of the hair fibers. In order to understand how they do that, let's first talk about 
you know, what is the surface of the hair fiber? Uh, we mentioned earlier that there are three major layers in the hair. There's the cuticle, which is the outermost layer, the cortex, and then the medulla. So the cuticle is responsible for the conditioning properties of the hair. Within the cuticle, there is an outermost sublayer that's composed of a lipid called 18-methyl eicosanoic acid or 18-MEA. And this is nature's hair conditioner. So your hair naturally has this. And this fatty acid layer, this lipid layer basically sticks out perpendicular to the hair fibers and gives the hair natural shine and lubricity, reduces, you know, the friction of the hair fibers. And it's uh, basically the first line of defense against outside elements for the hair. And 18-MEA is attached to the cuticle, uh, the protein specifically in the cuticle through thioester linkages. So when this 18-MEA layer is removed, um, either chemically through like bleaching or if you're permanently waving your hair or mechanically just through UV damage or repeated combing and brushing, the thioester linkage breaks and the hair fibers anionic sites are exposed. So that leads to a net negative charge on the hair fiber surface. And even before 18-MEA can be removed, studies have shown that unaltered human hair has an isoelectric point near 3.67, which means that the hair surface has a net negative charge at all pH values above 3.67. And most cosmetic formulas are formulated above 3.5. So again, we can see that the hair fiber surface has a net negative charge, which leads us to understand that cationic ingredients are going to be more attracted to hair fiber, the hair fiber surface and anionics. So most hair conditioning polymers are cationic. A few examples, of course, I already mentioned silicones. So there are some cationic silicones that we use, but there are other polymers. Um, polyquaternium 10, for example, that is a Quaternium ammonium salt of hydroxyethyl cellulose reacted with epoxy propyl trimonium chloride. Sorry, I'm using a lot of fancy uh, names here. And then we have polymers like polyquaternium 5 and polyquaternium 7. Those are actually black copolymers of a quaternium ammonium salt of acrylamide and beta methacrylyl oxyethyl trimonium ammonium methyl sulfate and acrylamide and diallyl dimethyl ammonium chloride. So the point is they're block copolymers. And then you can have cationic polymers that are natural, uh, naturally modified. So guar gum, if you modify that, you can use guar hydroxypropyl trimonium chloride. That's a great cationic polymer too. You might want to ask, why are polymers more used for hair conditioning than small molecules? You know, why are they uh, better for forming films in the hair fiber surface? So I thought about that question. And the most basic reason for that is that because polymers are long chains, uh, they have uh, more opportunities for interactions with the hair surface or any surface uh, than a small molecule. And the main types of interactions would be, of course, your ionic and your covalent bonds would be the strongest. So hence cationic polymers. You can also have hydrogen bonding, polar interactions like polyalcohols or polyamides. And then you also have your van der Waals forces. So your van der Waals forces are typically pretty weak, 
but um, in polymers, they can actually approach the strength of like ionic and covalent bonds because there are so many van der Waals bonding forces uh, between the polymer and the hair fiber. Additionally, let's talk a little bit about the thermodynamics of polymer adsorption. If we consider the process of polymer adsorption, there are three main interactions. So first you have your solvent molecules that interact with the hair surface. We basically need these solvent molecules to be displaced for the polymer chains to adsorb. Then second, you have the interactions between the polymer chains and the solvent. And then lastly, you have the interactions between the polymer chains and the hair surface. We also, of course, have to consider the conformation of the polymer molecule at the interface. And uh, let's take the example of a hydrophilic homopolymer like polyethylene oxide. Polyethylene oxide is going to form like uh, conformations like loops and trains and tails on the hair fiber surface. So when PEO goes from aqueous solution, where it's highly soluble, to the hair fiber surface, it actually undergoes a decrease in entropy. And we know that a decrease in entropy is thermodynamically unfavorable. So if you want PEO to adsorb on the hair fiber surface, you have to compensate this reduction of entropy by a favorable energy of adsorption between the polymer and the hair fiber surface. Unfortunately for PEO, the adsorption energy is not favorable between the polymer and the hair surface because it's a very highly water-soluble polymer. So for this reason, a lot of hydrophilic homopolymers have to be copolymerized with hydrophobic blocks in order to ensure that they adsorb onto the hair fiber surface. And um, I'm just going to give an example. If you consider an AB block copolymer, so the B block or the B chain, you would want it to have a high affinity to the surface of the hair fiber. So your B block should be soluble in the oil phase of your formulation. Now, the A block then would have a low affinity for the hair fiber surface, but it would be strongly solvated in the aqueous phase of your formula, and it would stabilize your polymer in your formulation. So you basically have the, the, the forces that ensure the adsorption of the polymer are opposite to the forces that ensure that the polymer is actually stable in your cosmetic formula. So it's opposite and opposing. You have to find, again, a balance between those interactions. Do you have uh, any questions about that? Not yet. <laughs> okay. Um, that's actually, that's what I wanted to touch on. Graphical polymers are even uh, better and cooler for this application. What did you say? So, what types of polymers? Uh, graft, graphical graft. polymer. Gotcha. So you're um, adsorbed onto the hair fiber surface, and then your A-chains would stick up and be perpendicular to the surface, and they would form a separate layer that might have other favorable properties like favorable optical properties or uh, textural properties like slip or, you know, shine. So, um, yeah, these are just, I'm just touching on the surface of uh, the physics behind all of it, but. So not only, so you're, I'm, I'm putting, trying to put together the different things that you have to be considering when you're, <laughs> yeah. when you're working, right? Like the, yeah. the number of perspectives that you had to have gained and worked through to be able yeah. to be a formulation scientist, it, that's incredible.
Yeah, but you know, a lot of people in my industry, they do a lot of trial and error. I, I also do that too. So the chemical suppliers are, they give you so many options and they have all these presentations and they do a lot of the science as well. And then you take that and you get samples and you just, you try it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you have to take a few chances and um, it's a lot of tinkering, I would say, for sure. <laughs> you know, I'm actually still thinking about some of the different issues a formulation scientist might have to consider when it comes to nail polish or even all of the different ingredients that go into it, right? I, I, so many things can go wrong. Can you touch on some of these different types of nail polish, maybe the ingredients that go into it? And what makes these different types unique? So traditional nail polishes, they're beautiful and uh, they're great. But one of the biggest problems with them is that they chip really easily. So any woman listening to this can relate to that, maybe some men as well. <laughs> if you're anything like me, like within an hour of getting a traditional manicure, you'll go into your car, you put your hand in your purse and you'll have a chip in your nail polish. And you're like, oh, that's 20 bucks down the drain. There recently has been an invent, not recently, I would say maybe 10 to 15 years ago, the invention of gel nail polish. So we'll talk about that. Now, traditional nail polish consists of like a pigment that'll provide color. There is an adhesive that sticks the pigment to the nail. Um, there's a solvent that keeps the, the pigment in a liquid form until it's applied to the surface of the nail. And then there are a few different polymers. So there are polymers in traditional nail polishes like nitrocellulose that acts as a film forming agent. Um, then you will have polymers for sure to uh, serve as rheology modifiers and stabilize your nail polish. But in gel nail polish, it's a whole different story. So gel nail polish is a light cured gel varnish where UV light is used to create a cross-linked polymer on your fingernail. So I'm sure this sounds familiar to you, Jacob. This is basically a polymerization, specifically a radical additional radical addition polymerization that's taking place on your fingernail while you're applying the nail polish. Oh, some live action network cross-linking, huh? Uh, how are these coatings applied? So when you go to the salon, um, it's applied in layers. So you'll apply the first layer and then you'll put your hands under a UV lamp and they'll cure the first layer. Then they'll apply the second layer. Then you'll put your hands with the lamp again, then they'll cure the second layer. And there's about like, I don't know, four layers, five layers. So each time you put your hand under the lamp, you'll feel your fingernails heat up. And that's basically the heat of the reaction of the polymerization uh, taking place. So as the polymers are chemically attaching, they're releasing energy. Yes, it's a. I, I believe it's an endothermic reaction. I I, I think. No, it's uh, got. Wouldn't it? When it would be cold if it were endo, wouldn't it? Because heat is released when uh, in an exothermic reaction. That's why you feed it. Feel it. You're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So I looked into this because you know the whole time I was like, oh, this is polymer science. I'm a polymer scientist. So of course I googled it and I wanted to understand like what exactly it's going on. So. These gel nail polishes use a mixture of monomers, oligomers, and of course, a photo initiator. The monomers uh, that are used are methacrylates. So you have typically tetrahydrofurfural methacrylate and hydroxypropyl methacrylate. And then the oligomers that are used are urethanes that are end capped with methacrylates. 
Um, you have dihema trimethyl dicarbamate and bishema poly 14 butane diol 22 PDI copolymer. <laughs> so what happens is when you expose your nails to the UV light, the oligomers join up to make longer pol polymer chains and the monomers create the crosslinks. And then your final crosslinked network is a thermoset plastic. So that means it can't be melted, it can't be dissolved, and acetone will transform it back to a gel. But I have to be honest, removing this kind of manicure is like terrible. You have to soak your fingers in acetone for like Ooh. 20 minutes. Ooh. Yeah, which is really drying, really bad. And then it still doesn't come off all the way. You have to kind of scrape it off too. Because it's a thermoset plastic, so it's it's not great. There's market for like a better removal product or uh, formulating this so it's less less good <laughs> now you can get it off more easily and you know typically you have to make sure your nail polish formula has a good blend of your monomers and oligomers so you want to make sure your reaction time occurs in a uh, suitable time frame so you don't want to be sitting there getting your manicure for like eight hours right <laughs> you want to be in and out and the monomer oligomer ratio will also affect the viscosity. So the oligomers are more viscous. So if you have too many oligomers, your nail polish would be too viscous and difficult to apply. But if it, you have too many monomers, the viscosity will be too low and it'll be really runny and it won't stick on your nail. So there's a lot of considerations to take place when you formulate, of course, a gel nail polish as well. But I think it's pretty cool. And, you know, maybe this technology can be applied in hair. I, I've been thinking about that. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Maybe something that works on a sunny day, cures when you walk outside. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. So it's, it's really cool when you read about technologies from adjacent uh, industries, you know, you can start thinking, well, how can I apply this in my industry? In my area? So, so yeah. Uh, I, my, I kept thinking about the having to soak your fingers in, in acetone thing <laughs> is that in, in case we have a listener who is maybe hesitant to use gel nail polish because they have to soak their fingers in acetone or Maybe they, they do it anyway, but they feel bad about it. Uh, can you comment on anything to make someone feel better that it's, you know, I mean, as far as I understand, acetone, it's not going to, doing that isn't going to harm your body. It's just going to make your fingers really dry. Yeah. I mean, what I do is I soak a cotton ball in acetone and then I put that on my fingernail with some foil. Mm -hmm. um, you can also apply like petroleum jelly before. So that'll form a nice uh, barrier on your skin surface and it'll protect it from the acetone. Oh. You know, it's not perfect, but it can help. A good little DIY. Or you can go to the salon. They have uh, better ways of doing it. They have well, they like Dremel it off, right? <laughs> no, they have their own um, solvent con concoctions. Okay, okay. They use that are more effective. You still have to do some scraping at the end. Yeah. I actually don't get the gel nail polish anymore because of that reason. But from what I hear, there is a nail polish. I think it's called shellac, and it's a combo of gel and traditional. So it's not as effective as gel, but it's better than traditional, and it's easier to remove. Mm -hmm. It's better, better in that sense that you commented that it's easier to remove. Um, it's uh, better. It doesn't chip as uh, much as gotcha. traditional and it's easier to remove than a gel. So it's the best of both mm -hmm. worlds kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah. So <laughs> there's, a, there's other options too. <laughs> 
I honestly, I cannot wait for people to listen to this. I think this is going to be a really fun episode for for others to hear. Oh, great! I'm glad. This yeah, absolutely. Really this has been this has been incredible. And I mean, if there's uh, obviously, I I'm, you know, I don't have any more specific questions. I think the um, okay. the fundamental knowledge that you've provided to this has been fascinating. And if, if unless there's anything else that you you would like to provide, uh, no, that's. I think that's everything I wanted to talk about. Awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, the fact that you even were like, yeah, I want to, ahead of time, you decided there were specific things that you would like to discuss. I appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I use this as an opportunity to kind of brush up on some of my uh, science too. Um, when you do that, you kind of, it helps you think of new ideas too. So it was, it was great. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, you know, actually that, that comment does give me maybe one last question. Can you talk about... What motivates you to keep doing your job? This this job specifically, what motivates you to be excited about the science that you produce? Well, it's when you solve a problem, I would say. So let's see. Let me give an example. Um, You know, I just had a daughter. So I was... um, She had a little bit of baby acne when she was born. And... um, (laughs) Before, which is natural, by the way, it goes away on its own. But at first I was kind of freaking out and um, I wanted to use like a like a gentle soap on her skin. But everything that I saw on the market, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but it all seemed uh, pretty harsh or it had bad preservatives or something was wrong. So I was like, hey, I've been making a formula before I left. Um, I was working on something. So I had someone from the lab make a few tweaks and send a sample to my home. And I use that on her skin. (laughs) (laughs) So you're solving a need and um, you become so knowledgeable that it, you know, you can, you can control that whole process. It's like cooking. Like um, it's really gratifying when you have that end product and someone either it helps someone or, you know, in cooking, it tastes really good, but um, it satisfies the end user. So I guess that's my motivation. Yeah. Wait, 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 I got to go back to this product you used on your child. Um, <laughs> did it work? Yeah, yeah, it did. It was a oh. really uh, basic um, cleanser that I had been working on. Mm-hmm. I was using, yeah, I'm, I, I want to say too much. Yeah, you, do, don't, you, don't, you don't, don't do that. Yeah. Um, what, what are some of the uh, harsh chemicals that you, that you noticed in these other products that you were like, oh, maybe I don't want to use these on my newborn baby? Well, there are a lot of, pre- you have to use preservatives in all cosmetic formulations. Of course, you don't want uh, your formula to grow bacteria or, you know, mold or anything. But people are, there in the past 10 years, again, um, there have been preservatives that have been getting a lot of flack because they, for example, we'll release formaldehyde. Um, we know formaldehyde obviously is not good for our health or they'll be harmful to the skin or they'll cause uh, contact dermatitis. You know, there's so many reasons why they're bad. Some of these claims are over-exaggerated, but in my child's, uh, <laughs> you know, facial cleanser, I, I don't want to mess with that. I don't want to go towards right. that kind of stuff. And our company specifically we are obsessed with using the safest uh, stuff out there. So the, mm-hmm. the preservatives we've been using are very mild. So I'm very confident that our formulas are safe. That's why I wanted to use something that I made myself. Whereas some of the baby stuff out there, there were like stuff that we don't even use for our adults. So 
that's that's kind of where uh, I draw the line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. All right. Well, Maliha, that's a wonderful story to end on. So we can go ahead and call it there. Thank you so, so much again for coming to talk with me today. I, I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It was, it was a great opportunity, Jacob. And another thank you to all of you wonderful listeners for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed this story and that maybe you've learned a thing or two about some of these cosmetic products we use every single day. If you have any feedback or comments, questions about our show, or maybe questions that you might like to have answered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to polymerSciencePodcast at gmail.com. And as always, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe for these episodes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.